Welcome to the Making of the Islamic World. I'm Chris Grayton. If you're hearing this through the Ottoman History Podcast, the Making of the Islamic World is a series of podcasts intended for the university classroom. With each episode, we provide a bibliography of readings associated with the topic, as well as other readings and activities great for group discussion or for simply exploring on your own. In our last episode, we dealt with an invasion of the Islamic world from the West, the Crusades. And as UVA professor Josh White explained, the Crusades, however violent they may have been, were not a pivotal moment in the history of the Islamic world per se. In this episode, we're dealing with another invasion, this time from the East, by the Mongols of Central Asia. And despite a similar theme of invasion, the consequences of the Mongol conquests couldn't have been more different. And so when we think about what do the Mongols change, why do the Mongols matter, the very short answer is everything. Nothing is the same after the Mongols. Historians have pretty much always seen the Mongol conquest of the 13th century as earth-shattering events. But the main theme in the historiography of the Mongols was usually destruction. In recent decades, scholars have paid more attention to what the Mongols built as well. Here's Zoe Griffith. There was this real, real rehabilitation of the reputation of the Mongols with the key talking point being that they, for kind of the first and maybe only time, integrated all of Eurasia from the Pacific to the Black Sea or the Mediterranean in this kind of very early globalized, interconnected world system. And my first in, uh, introductions to the Mongols uh, was in the days of like mountains of skulls or something. But now it seems like, you know, the Mongols as state builders, the Mongols as institution builders, the Mongols as kind of tolerant pragmatists is more in line with how we understand Mongols today. This podcast is going to focus on the consequences of the Mongol period for the Islamic world. As we'll explain, military tactics, statecraft, culture, and even the environment were permanently transformed by the Mongols and their successors. By the end of this podcast, the Mongols will have morphed into rulers of Islamic polities whose successors redefined what it meant to be a Muslim sovereign. But the history of the Mongols is not solely in Islamic world history by any means. The group we refer to as the Mongols got their start in Central Asia. During their initial rise, their capital was a city in modern-day Mongolia called Karakorum. From Karakorum, the Mongols conquered much of the world. The first Mongol emperor, Chinggis Khan, you might know him as Genghis, is one of world history's most famous figures. You might have also heard of his grandson, Kublai, who was the Mongol emperor of China at the time of Marco Polo's journey east. You may have even heard of Kublai Khan's brother, Hulagu, whose armies conquered Baghdad and most of the Turco-Persian world we discussed in episode 3. And another grandson of Chinggis, Batu Khan, founded the dynasty known as the Golden Horde, which ruled much of modern-day Russia and invaded as far west as Poland and Hungary. The geography the Mongols briefly controlled is staggering. Much of the former Soviet Union, all of China and the Korean Peninsula, Iran, Iraq, and much of modern Turkey. Some of their successors would also birth a dynasty known as the Mughals, who ruled most of South Asia at their height. 
And that's why Mongol history is world history almost by definition. The Mongols had a true empire in the sense that they governed and incorporated an incredibly diverse range of religious and ethnic groups into their polity. At the base of their power was horses, which comprised the backbone of their incredibly mobile pastoralist communities that supplied the Mongol armies. And the short answer why the Mongol armies were so dominant could be uh, large numbers of people and what they did with them. Right, so I, I think the the kind of villagers' eye view of the Mongols, right? And we use that word horde, which actually comes from you know the Turco-Mongol word for an army, ordu, right? A whole bunch of people on horses riding at you at a furious speed, about to trample everything and destroy everything. And what looks to be chaotic rampaging is actually very strategic, carefully choreographed rampaging. So the Mongol armies are organized into decimal units. The standard Mongol field army in Ordu is comprised of four to five Tumens. When a Tumen goes into the field, that's 10,000 men. That comes with probably five times as many women and children alongside it and other non-combatants. It's thought that the Mongols had in the 13th century as many as 50 Tumens at their disposal. So 500,000 men, almost universal male conscription. So they're carefully organized. They plan their campaigns extremely carefully using multi-pronged tactics, arranging for their armies to meet at various points. So there's a lot of care there. Now, what are these armies actually doing? What makes them so fearsome and so successful? If you think about the Mongols, right, we're talking about pastoral nomads, people who grow up quite literally in the saddle. A Mongol warrior is first and foremost a mounted archer. They are deploying the composite recurved bow, composite because it's made from a laminate of bone and other materials, glued together, cured for a very long time, recurved because its natural position is to curve in the opposite direction of the way in which you string it. So there's a tremendous amount of tension on the string, which means that those arrows can fly fast and they fly hard. A Mongol nomadic warrior travels with a string of horses. These are like ponies, right? They're quite small. And so the Mongol warrior is not usually armored, or if he is, it's boil leather armor. It's not a lot. But when one horse is tired, you swap, switch on to the next one. When that horse is tired, you switch on to the next one. And then you can keep riding. You can cover tremendous distance that way. If you're hungry, you as the warrior, you cut a vein on the neck of your horse. That doesn't really hurt the horse. Drink some blood. Uh, switch on to the next horse. Just give that one a couple days to rest. Keep going. Is that real? Is that that like is real. That is real. The Mongol warrior diet of horse meat, raw wild onions, and fermented mare's milk was not one that was perhaps as balanced as, as ideal. Uh, longevity is not, not their thing. But the bottom line is these guys cover a tremendous amount of distance in a very short period of time. Okay, so large numbers of people can travel quickly and efficiently, planning what they're going to do well in advance with a weapon that they've wielded from childhood and which they can wield extremely effectively. So if you then think a few tens of thousands of soldiers on their horses, riding quickly, firing volleys from a distance, that can be extremely effective. 
just sheer numbers alone would make these guys a terror. But then the tactics themselves were designed to fool their enemies. You know, they'd uh, attack in a wave, then turn around and, and give the idea maybe that they were fleeing, firing backwards as they went, then reform and attack again. All that, you know, was extremely effective on the battlefield. Now you might be wondering then, all right, a whole bunch of guys on horses with no armor and bows and arrows, how do we take a city? And the answer is that the other trick that the Mongols had, which worked extremely well for them, is they enrolled everybody they conquered. So most of the Mongol armies were in fact Turks, other pastoral nomadic peoples who shared much in terms of culture and uh, you know, military prowess, but as they went, they took on everybody else. So the Mongols themselves, no masters of siege engines, that's okay. When they conquer people who did, they, they brought them into the, in, into the game. We tend to think about the most, and we probably should, the destruction that the Mongols wrought across China, across Central Asia, across uh, Khorasm, across the kind of Middle East, and, you know, of course, into Russia and, and uh, Eastern Europe as well. But the Mongols wrought destruction strategically. The whole idea was destroy one place so that the next place will submit. And the Mongols did not like losing warriors. They did what they could to avoid it. If then you heard the Mongols were coming and they sent emissaries to you, you know, your responses were really kind of two. One was to kill the emissaries and the Mongols were coming for you. The other was to agree to submit, in which case they'd appoint somebody to collect taxes from you. They might leave administration sort of as was locally. Um, and they would expect you to supply military units uh, for their campaigns, which were more or less continuous. That's how this whole thing works, right? So constantly steamrolling, or, or I guess a better word is snowballing. You can imagine a snowball um, rolling across uh, <laughs> Central Asia with terrible violence, um, gathering size as it goes down the hill. Let's well, cut that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the image that was in my head as well, Josh. And my question was then, so the Mongols had superior military capability and were very good of, at incorporating new elements. But how did this translate into statecraft? What, once the conquest had reached their limits, either by conquering everything, if, if you look eastward, or by the defeats that the Mongols eventually face, what kind of state? were they able to create out of that? So in some respects, we can find pa parallels for what the Mongols did with what the Arab conquerors did six centuries earlier. They were very flexible and willing to uh, incorporate bureaucratic expertise locally. Uh, Mongol practice in general was when conquering an area, if it submitted to be less destructive, if it didn't, to often wipe out the entire population, but to spare the clergy and the tradesmen, the artisans, and folks like that, and dispatch them back to Karakorum. The Mongols then relied on an extremely diverse bureaucracy to, to rule their domains. As nomads themselves, they didn't necessarily have the expertise to govern agricultural lands directly, but they simply enrolled those who did. At the same time, they had a very firm idea of their domains as being unified. And so one of the things that they did prioritize, and these one, this is one of the innovations of the Mongols, right, is, is to establish a post system, right, with regular 
stations along it so that people could travel back and forth. Messages could travel back and forth extremely rapidly. Think back again to the way in which the Mongol warrior always has a string of horses, five, six horses to ride. And then you can think about how the sort of Mongol Pony Express would work, where you'd ride, the, the person would ride from, uh, the dispatch man would ride from one station to the next to swap horses or swap guys and keep going. And so they, they are able to uh, maintain connections between these vast territories uh, as efficiently as possible and to encourage trade between them. But locally, Mongol rule, in many respects, starts to take on forms rather similar to those of the dynasties they supplanted. So the unified Great Khanate doesn't last very long, and Mongol rule in you know, greater Iran looks in some respects, similar to what came before. Mongol rule in China starts to look, in some respects, quite similar to what came before, right? Mongolian does not remain the language in use for rulership in any of these places for long, if at all. And the religions of the conquered are soon adopted by the conquerors in these places. It takes a few decades, but it happens in each one of them. So that's all, uh, you know, uh, examples of continuity, what the Mongols do, though, that which is quite different, is to impose their ideas of what authority should look like and what legitimacy looks like. reality, I think, of uh, the Mongol conquest in the region was much more of a, of a process than of this kind of cataclysmic turning point. And, you know, I mean, even during the lifetime of Chinggis Khan, um, so kind of as early as 1220, you know, this is kind of the, the beginning of when the Mongols have consolidated enough and, and expanded far enough under Chinggis Khan uh, and his armies. This is kind of the beginning of the Mongol conquests of Muslim states, you know. And the first, the first kind of well-known or the first significant conquest was in the Transoxiania region, specifically the ruler of the uh, Khwarezmian Empire based in Samarkand. Uh, Chinggis Khan tries to open trade relations with the ruler of, of the Khwarezmian Empire. His name was, you know, Muhammad II. Sends him a message, asks him to open trade relations. And, you know, eventually the, the message kind of goes unreturned. Uh, Chinggis Khan sends envoys to Shah Muhammad in Samarkand, sends him gifts, jade, ivory, textiles, gold. And Shah Muhammad's response is suspicion, is to effectively rebuff these overtures. And then when there are kind of follow-up attempts, Muhammad kills one of Chinggis Khan's envoys and sends his head back to to Chinggis Khan. And this is kind of, you know, the worst possible uh, error that someone could make in Mongol diplomacy and ultimately, you know, invites Chinggis Khan to send 
a pretty significant army. We have a lot of trouble like knowing for sure what what size we're talking about, but you know, certain records say a hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand people to overthrow uh, this state in Samarkand to subjugate the city and uh, bring its population and wealth and its connections on the Silk Road under Mongol control. You know, and this is one of these episodes, uh, we have estimates by historians and archaeologists of of the city, urban archaeologists, who say, you know, the number of, of people killed might have been as high as 100,000, um, you know, in the 13th century. This is a really, really significant number. But again, there's, there is a lot of exaggeration in the numbers of contemporary accounts. And that actually goes both ways. There was kind of a tendency to inflate the number of Mongol atrocities, uh, both to tar the Mongols as, you know, barbarians and kind of uh, monstrous infidels, often by uh, Muslim authors, um, but then also apparently a tendency to sort of exaggerate to impress the boss. Like, you know, these uh, Muslim scribes, they're now under uh, Mongol rule and some of, apparently some of the um, Mongol rulers wanted their historians to... Uh, participate in their kind of psychological warfare. And so they, they wanted them to come up with these big round numbers, 100,000, 200,000 people slain in the streets. So once Chinggis Khan's armies had established themselves in uh, Samarkand, in Bukhara, um, they move westward conquer um, places like Herat in what is now Afghanistan and Iran. So by the 1230s places, you know, the, the Mongols are basically in charge of um, Azerbaijan, parts of what is now southern Iran. Some of these places were conquered. Some of them were volunteer, uh, some of them voluntarily submitted rather than face Mongol armies. By the 1234-1236, the Mongols have established themselves in the Caucasus and Armenia and Georgia, and then they begin to move by the late 1230s into territory under Seljuk rule, Western Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan, all of Afghanistan, parts of uh, Kashmir. And after the Battle of uh, Kusida in 1243, the Mongols... Um, occupy Anatolia and bring the uh, Seljuk Sultanate of Rum and the Empire of Trebizond sort of under their, their sphere of influence as vassals. The Mongols were not the first group to conquer a large region of the Islamic world in a short period of time. They weren't even the first group from Central Asia to do so. The Seljuk expansion certainly shared a lot with what the Mongols would later do. But the Mongols went further than the Seljuks ever did, toppling the Abbasid caliphs who had ruled Baghdad since the 8th century. This is one reason why the destruction wrought by the Mongols has attained mythical status. The Mongol conquests in the Middle East, most people have heard of the siege of Baghdad in 1258, and it, I think, still retains this quality, this kind of cataclysmic quality, and a lot of that has to do with the way that contemporary Muslim observers uh, of the 
Mongol sacking of Baghdad and the uh, the end of the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad, uh, the way that they experienced it and wrote about it. By the 1240s, the Abbasid Caliphate, um, the rulers of the Abbasid Empire in Baghdad, you know, they're observing what's going on. The news has reached them of the conquest and submission of many of their neighbors to the north. And by 1241, the Abbasids, you know, had gotten wise to the Mongol modus operandi and adopted the practice of sending an annual tribute to the court of the great Khan uh, in the Yuan dynasty. And so, you know, there were diplomatic relations between the Abbasids and the Mongols uh, by the 1240s. There were envoys from Baghdad present at the coronation of sort of, you know, the uh, inauguration of new great Khans, the uh, Khagan, in 1246 and again in 1251. But by 1257, uh, the great Khan, uh, Monke Khan, who was inaugurated in 1251, he decides that he wants not just uh, a tributary relationship, but um, a more kind of direct control over Mesopotamia, Syria, and um, Iran, Persia. So he entrusts his brother uh, Hulagu Khan with instructions to bring the Abbasid Caliph under submission, um, although he did not ask his brother Hulagu to overthrow <laughs> the caliphate entirely. You know, he said that Hulagu could destroy Baghdad if the caliph refused his demands or if he refused to continue to pay tribute, but he did not actually want to kind of um, end the long-standing Abbasid Caliphate. Ultimately, the Mongol army that marches on Baghdad in 1258, you know, you get a sense actually for the number of the number of polities that the Abbasids had kind of fallen out of favor with or with whom they had strained strained relations to the point that, you know, Christian forces, including the king of Armenia and his army, a crusader contingent from Antioch, a Georgian army, all of these Christian forces seeking revenge on the Abbasids agreed to sign on to the Mongol siege of Baghdad. There were also about a thousand Chinese artillery experts, Persian, Turkic auxiliaries. There are Muslims and Christians fighting alongside the Mongols to destroy Baghdad. They have Armenian and Georgian contingents, representatives of the Seljuks along for the ride. Uh, so this was not just a sort of, you know, ferocious Mongols on horseback, nomadic barbarians swarming into the cultivated capital of Baghdad. I mean, this was a very diverse and sort of diplomatically constructed force that um, undertakes the siege of Baghdad. And ultimately, the Abbasid Caliph uh, didn't take it particularly seriously. Uh, he, this was uh, the Caliph al-Mustasim. He believed that, you know, once other Muslim armies like the, the Mamluks and 
the Seljuks, once they heard about, you know, this threat to the caliphate, that they would come to his aid. Um, but he didn't really take any measures to make that happen. He didn't fortify the city. And ultimately, the city fell, surrendered after 12 days of siege and was sacked. And much of it was destroyed and many people were killed during the Mongol siege. This is where it becomes really hard to separate out sort of fact and fiction. We don't even know for sure if the Mongols, you know, did sack the great library of Baghdad, you know, whether they destroyed uh, Beit al-Hikmah, the house of wisdom from the, the 8th century. There are accounts from Muslim uh, authors at the time that, you know, this, this real and this incredible imagery writing about how the, the Tigris ran red from the blood of scientists and philosophers who were slaughtered by the Mongol armies and, you know, or the, the Tigris ran black with the ink of the, of the books, the library books tossed into the, uh, into the water, into the rivers. Um, you know, these accounts, we tend to find them um, from 14th century sources and the poetry of it you can tell what an effective image that would have been to elicit sympathy from other Muslim uh, readers. But there are also historians who say, you know, there were like very famous, important scientists like Nasruddin al-Tusi, like affiliated with the Mongols. The Mongols were not like anti-science or anti-knowledge. They understood the value of um, having scientists and scholars on their side. And so it's pretty unlikely that they would have, A, murdered all of, the, all of the scientists, or B, murdered all of the civilians who they needed to kind of run the city and make it, make it profitable. So the city of Baghdad went from being, you know, the capital of a major sort of world empire dynasty, although it hadn't been at its height for several centuries. Um, after 1258, it is no longer kind of the center of anything. So it was certainly diminished, but whether it was really kind of raised to the ground by the Mongols is pretty hard to say. The consequences of the Mongol conquests have often been misunderstood. Because of the sensational accounts we have, they're usually remembered for a scale of brutality that might not always be accurate. But in other ways, the Mongol impacts have also sometimes been understated. After all, the state founded by Hulagu, who conquered Baghdad in 1258, lasted less than a century. We've already heard about so many relatively minor dynasties in our series which lasted for a similar period of time. Because of the relatively short time period in which the Mongols ruled as emperors in their own rights, their longer legacy for the Islamic world has sometimes been ignored. One region where this is the case is modern Turkey. A few years back, I spoke to Sarah Nur Yildiz, who has published widely on the history of medieval Anatolia. In our conversation, we kept coming back to the problems of the version of Turkish national history that presents an uncomplicated continuity between the Seljuk period and the Ottoman period in which the Seljuks are seen as the, quote, pre-Ottoman Turkish forebears of the Ottoman dynasty. This narrative seems to treat the Mongol invasion of Anatolia as we treated the Crusades in our previous episode of this series, 
as a blip. But if we can't imagine the Ottoman Empire without what happened during the Seljuk period, we certainly can't imagine the Ottomans without the Mongols. If we start with how the Mongol period has been conceived um, in Turkish historiography, it's sort of like an unfortunate period of time that isn't really given its due, I would say. You always refer to the Seljuk period rather than to the Mongol period, for instance. Mm. I mean, I like to get around that by saying Mongol dominated Seljuk Anatolia, which sort of accounts for both, because, I mean, the Mongols were a clear presence, however, they lacked a kind of the same kind of political legi- legitimacy as, say, the, the Seljuk dynasty had. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, one of the things I've been struggling with for maybe over a decade is, is to better understand the Mongol period of Seljuk Anatolia. And we know about the Mongol period from just a handful of texts. There's not a lot of, uh, of uh, n- information, uh, sources, whatever. So it, it, it's quite a challenge. And the primary source, of course, is, is Ibn Bibi's um, history of the Seljuks. And it's a written in a very difficult Persian prose and hasn't been edited. There are, of course, Turkish translations, but none of them really bring across the, you know, the, the true depth of the text, so um, they're problematic. But when you come right down to it, Ibn Bibi wrote this great history of the Seljuks, and it's an amazing work, a fantastic work. It's, it's, it's a brilliant piece, actually, when you think about mm-hmm. the complexities of this work. But he wrote it in the context of Mongol rule. So it's the primary text that gives us the basic information we know about Seljuk Anatolia, but in itself the text was shaped by Mongol rule. So what we know about Seljuk Anatolia comes from the Mongol period and is shaped by the problems of Mongol rule. And so that's how I've been trying to 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 understand you know, the entire period of Seljuk Anatolia. And, and, of course, it presents as many problems because when you try to understand an entire period based primarily on one text, uh, of course, you are reading only one man's view of history. And this is our basic problem with Seljuk history. I mean, what we know, about 70% of what we know of Seljuk Anatolia comes from Bibi, basically. Um, so, you know, he of course ends in 1282, and then we have a few other Persian texts that provide the basic outlines of the political narrative of what we know, but it's basically Mbibi is our text. And the Mongol period, because it's so complex, because we're dealing with not just Anatolia, but also we're dealing with a polity based in Iran, Ilhanids. But before the Ilhanids, of course, yeah. um, we have Mongol rule, a period of Mongol rule that's directed from, directly from Karakurum. So, you know, we have to deal with the complexities of Mongol rule as well as those complexities in the context of Ma- Anatolia. And, you know, it, it's, it's, extremely, it's extremely challenging, but I think the importance of Mongol Anatolia is quite apparent when you look at how, for instance, the... the, the Ottomans come to power. Of course, Rudy Lindner has discussed, you know, these questions mm-hmm. in a few articles about, you know, the the fact that the Mongols were actually, you know, tributary to the to the Mongols. And we kind of forget the Ottomans that. were tributary yeah. to the Mongols. I mean, yeah. sorry, the Ottomans were tributary to the Mongols. Um, of course, but when we, what the problem is when we read 
Ottoman historiography, I mean, historical works, they completely ignore the Mongols and mm. they create a fiction of Seljuk Ottoman continuity. And this is something that modern historians have bought accepted into, yeah. and bought into. So, and that um, in itself is very interesting what type of rule they're trying to claim. Yeah, so so we have all those 15th century, you know, Ottoman chronicle texts that, you know, make reference to Osman, you know, getting, you know, the investiture rule from the Seljuk ruler, Aladdin Kekubad, this, you know, very fuzzy character, mm. <laughs> which is a total, um, it's a total fiction because Aladdin Kekubad III, what we know of from um, sources is that he was basically... Uh, run, uh, running around Tabriz Maraga, you know, in uh, the center of Mong, you know, the Ilhanate, begging for money. You know, he he was he was called a beggar and a debtor, and apparently, he was given a gift of a horse by one of the vizier's sons. So you know, he was hardly in a position to. Um, grant investiture to Osman. So it's clearly a fiction. However, these fictions have been uh, read, you know, at face value by historians dealing with Ottoman history. And, and we have this very, very problematic relationship between the Ottomans and, say, the Seljuk past. And I think this problem is actually a 15th century question. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that when these works were taking their final shape, mm-hmm. maybe they were begun to. Re- to be written in Mehmet the Second's time, but they seem to be wrapped up in Bez at the Second's period. And we have the ongoing Ottoman conquest of the region of Karaman, which was something that took over a couple of decades, sure. you know, begun by Mehmet the Second and finalized by Bez the Second. And the Karamanids were always claiming to be the successors of the Seljuks because, of course, they had taken over the capital of the Seljuks, etc. And they, this was part of their propaganda, and I think the Ottomans were answering to that propaganda with their own set of mm-hmm. claims oh, to Seljuk rule. So I think that that's one way we can sort of see you know, how that relationship has been uh, shaped in the historiography. And um, I think uh, we have to learn to read our texts much more critically. If the significance of Mongol rule in modern-day Turkey has been ignored, you can't ignore the Mongol period in historical Persia, which was the heart of a Mongol successor state often referred to as the Ilkhanate. Like so many dynasties before them, they eventually adopted the Persianate court culture that prevailed in the region. Here's Zoe Griffith. When the Mongols settle in the eastern heartlands of the Muslim world, so in Persia, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in uh, Transoxiania, this kind of area, we find in the kind of earlier years more of an effort to style themselves as Persianate rulers um, than as Muslim rulers. And this is actually, I think, a recurring story throughout the first maybe millennium of uh, Islamic rule in Iran, Persia, and surrounding areas. There's the example of, uh, it's called the Takht de Suleiman. It's this incredible sort of palace that the Ilkhanids built in uh, the 1280s, um, right outside of Tabriz. 
you know, the Mongols are this nomadic people, but they conquer and sort of settle in some of the oldest, most sophisticated, like urban societies uh, in the world at the time in China, in, uh, in Iran, in, you know, many areas in Central Asia. Um, but they maintain this practice, this nomadic practice of winter and summer pastures, the Keshlach and the Yailach, the Ilkhanates winter their flocks in warm lands in Mesopotamia around Baghdad. Um, but then they would, you know, when, when the summer heat set in and the humidity move their pastures north and summer in the highlands of Azerbaijan. And as the Ilkhanids begin to settle in and settle down, they're, you know, they want to sort of adopt some more permanent monuments attesting to their, to their rule in the area. And so, yeah, there is this grand summer palace constructed under Argun. He's a, the grandson of Hulegu Khan. And, you know, they choose for the site of this construction, this monumental construction, uh, the foundations of this old Zoroastrian sanctuary, uh, which was, of course, in ruins and, and, you know, by the 1280s hadn't been used for you know, 800 years or what have you. But this had been a famous sort of Sassanid royal sanctuary uh, on the shores of Lake Urmia, um, outside of Tabriz. And the sort of geometry and architecture and design of this, uh, of this palace, the Takht Suleiman, really draws from pre-Islamic and Persianate decorative motifs. And so there is already from the sort of 1280s, this clear effort to ground themselves in a Persianate past. It's not until 1295 that the Ilkhanids, that any of the Ilkhanid rulers converts to Islam. And that occurs under the rule of uh, Ghazan, the great grandson of Hulegu Khan. And, you know, this is kind of the the addition of the Islamic part of Persian identity to the already existing sort of Persianate identity of the Ilkhanids. So, you know, Ghazan, even after his conversion, he remained quite tolerant of other religions. Um, he converted to Sunnism, but he didn't take anything out on uh, Shiite inhabitants of his realm. He had nothing against sort of the Mongols of his court who maybe didn't want to convert to Islam and retain some of their shamanistic or more Buddhist uh, beliefs. He respected his Georgian and Armenian, like vassal rulers, their religious practices. He upheld the Mongol Yasa code, continued to patronize Mongol shamans. And so this was, you know, kind of a, a personal conversion, more of a, more than a domain-wide conversion. There was no effort to convert his population to Islam either. And in fact, um, in 1298, Ghazan actually issued an edict exempting the Christians of his realm from paying the jizya, the tax on non-Muslims. Uh, and he punished fanatics who would go out and destroy churches and synagogues in Tabriz. His brother, old Jaitu, who succeeded him in 1304, is like a fascinating example of, you know, how Mongol rulers really didn't seem to 
invest very much of their like right to rule in any kind of religious identity. I mean, uh, old Jaitu's mother was a Christian. He was raised as a Buddhist. Um, and then he was baptized into Christianity when he was around 10 years old. When his brother, Ghazan, converted to Sunni Islam, old Jaitu also converts to Sunni Islam. Uh, but later he sort of um, comes under the influence of uh, Shi'i theologians, and so he converts to Shi'ism. But around the same time, or sort of, you know, a few years after his conversion to Shi'ism, he has a change of heart, and there are uh, reports that he either reconverted to Sunnism or flirted with Tengrism, or the original kind of Mongol heartland nomadic shamanistic belief in the god of gods Tengri, but this is like a holdover from the age of Chinggis Khan. And all of this, uh, you know, he only lived to be 34, so this all happened like before the age of 30. So he was a very, very experimental guy. He also built, I mean, one of the most uh, significant surviving monuments of, Mam of Mongol rule uh, was Oljaitu's mausoleum uh, that he built in, it was completed in 1313. This is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. You can look it up uh, online. But it's it's a pretty incredible structure. It's all that remains of the third Ilkhanid capital, uh, Sultania, which was uh, founded by his father, uh, Oljaitu's father. From what we understand, he began building it as his tomb at the time that he came to power in 1304, and then when he converted from Sunnism to Shiism, he decided that this mausoleum should be a shrine for Imam Ali and Hussein, uh, who he would bring from their resting place in Iraq and have reinstalled in this great mausoleum in northwestern Iran. But before the building was completed, he abandoned that idea and it did actually become his own tomb. But again, this just kind of goes to show that there was not a very strong correlation between uh, rulership and sort of religious identity or religious conviction in the Ilkhanate. Some of the Mongol rulers did convert to Islam, but many scholars have described the Mongols as having an ecumenical inclination or light touch with regard to religion. It's this hands-off approach that might have had the biggest impact on the development of Islam. And... Just returning to something I mentioned before, I really think that this sort of uh, eclecticism, it went both ways. I mean, it's not shocking that in this environment in northwestern Iran, Azerbaijan, in the Ilkhanate, in the 13th and early 14th centuries, that the rulers did not feel any particular urgency or that there was any enormous reward in taking an orthodox stance or in being uncompromising in their religious identity. I mean, there were, there were many, many uh, Sufi movements that came out of this environment uh, in northwestern Iran and, and, and surrounding areas, eastern Anatolia, in the late 13th, early 14th centuries. Uh, and one of these movements, I mean, precisely in the area around the um, Ilkhanate capitals, this is the environment in which the Safavid uh, Sufi order, the Safaviyya, comes into existence. So this was a movement founded by a man, uh, Sheikh Safiyyuddin al-Ardabili, um, who actually takes over a Sufi order. 
founded by his uncle, I believe. You know, he is this charismatic Sunni Sufi sort of mystic figure. He accumulates many, many followers to his brand of kind of revivalist, personalized uh, religious uh, experience. And, you know, this will ultimately, although it is founded as a Sunni Sufi order in the area around Ardabil, you know, 200 years later, by the late 15th, early 16th century, the Safavia order becomes attached to these Turkic tribal contingents, uh, one of whom, Shah Ismail I, founds his own dynasty under the sort of auspices of the Safavia order and calls it the, the Safavid empire. And of course we all, well, we perhaps know that uh, the Safavid dynasty, the Safavid state in Iran in the, you know, from 1501 um, until the 18th century is a, is a Shiite, you know, a very explicitly Shiite uh, state but it emerged out of this uh, out of this environment of you know a lot of political disorder, you know a sort of post Abbasid breakdown of Sunni authority. There is no one single Sunni authority in the Muslim world um, after 1258 for a long time. Um, this area, which you know is under the rule of the Ilkhanids, who are you know, sort of experimenting, dabbling with Islam, but not dedicated to it. Um, it's far from the centers of power. This region, eastern Anatolia, northwestern Iran, uh, the Caucasus, what have you, is really ripe for highly personal sort of messianic religious political movements. And this, this one in particular movement, the Safavia order, comes out of the exact environment that we're that we're talking about and is ultimately you know 200 years down the road uh going to give rise to one of the great gunpowder empires albeit in its shiite iteration under the safavids iran would become the center of an empire once again from the 16th century onwards but by the middle of the 14th century the ilkhanate was no more the arrival of the black death which struck lands further west in the years that followed, appears to have been a final destabilizing factor. Around that same time, a man named Timur was born in the Chagatai Khanate, another Mongol offshoot in Central Asia. Timur, known to history as Tamerlan, was from a Turkicized Mongol confederation in modern-day Uzbekistan, and not much is known about his background. But by the beginning of the 15th century, he had built a vast domain centered on Khorasan and Transoxiana, reprising in some way the rapid Mongol conquest of the 13th century. Timur is a Mongol. Timur is himself a Mongol, but he is not descended from Genghis Khan. And this actually is an excellent illustration of how the, the Mongols, that is to say, Genghis and his successors, changed the name of the game entirely. Genghis Khan and his successors conquered vast amounts of territory, took control of things, Hulugu's descendants, right, set up the Ilkhanate. It's only around 1300 that the Ilkhans adopt Islam. 35 years later, the Ilkhanate's gone, right? It's around the same time that the Mongols in China adopt Buddhism. 
you have Nestorian Christians among the Mongols, right? They, they'll, they'll take on kind of whatever is in the area, and Karakoram, of course, welcomes all faiths. Timur is himself a Mongol of kind of shadowy origins who very self-consciously shapes his origin story to match that of Genghis. Somebody who is on the margins of his tribe and of his people, who through sheer force of will takes control first of his clan, then of his tribe, then unites the tribes, and embarks with his people united on a reign of terror and conquest, which is to be celebrated in the view of Timur and his successors. He's very, very, very purposefully adopting an origin story just like Genghis's. So much so, in fact, that actually knowing really more about who this guy is gets very difficult. The name by which he's known, Timur Elenk, is, is, you know, suggests that he's lame in some way. That's why we know him as Tamerlane um, in European languages. How did he become lame in that way? We're told an arrow wound, maybe, in the leg, but we, we actually don't know. And there is an interesting tension between the titles that Timur will use for himself, you know, like the, the Lord of the Auspicious Conjuncture, something like the planets have aligned to create this man and... and and make him a universal ruler. And at the same time, the idea that he will refer to himself simply as a son-in-law, as a general, not as an emperor, not as a Khan. He's never a Khan. He marries a descendant of Genghis Khan to get a piece of that legitimacy. He puts a puppet on the throne locally of Genghis descent to put in front of him as a legitimate ruler precisely because he feels like it is impossible as a non-Genghis Mongol to be in charge. That's how fundamentally things get reshaped. Of course, once we get a, a couple generations out, now everybody wants to be descended from Timur. Being descended from Timur is now the thing that you can look towards for legitimacy, not necessarily from Genghis. But within a couple centuries, right, even less than that, Chingi, you know, being a Chinggisid is, is, is supremely important. Timur would also be the first, but hardly the last, major Mongol successor to create a dynasty rooted firmly within the Islamic imperial tradition. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that Islam is important for the Timurids. When Timur is ravaging Anatolia, he makes a point to go out of his way to go to Izmir, which was controlled at the moment by the hospitalers, so that he can wrest it from them and adopt the title of Ghazi, this title that will become quite important amongst the Ottomans, you know, as we'll get this valence of warrior for the faith, not just raider. And because the Ottomans had used it, is after smashing the Ottoman armies, he goes out of his way to deal with that. He obviously cares about that side of his legitimacy and of, you know, making his capital of Samarkand a, a place that is friendly to scholarship, friendly to art, and what have you. I can't speak to how important this was in his personal life. Um, I mean, you can look to the encounter he has with Ibn Khaldun for kind of some insights. But does Islam mean the same thing to Timur as it does to Ibn Khaldun? Probably not. But it is clear that it's an important unifying feature that he makes a point of Islamizing the still non, some of the still non-Muslim Mongols who are enrolled in this enterprise. Timur is different from Chinggis in some crucial respects, among which is that Chinggis was more willing to delegate power 
both within his family and to those who were very close to him within his ruling cadre, right? So, so he gives substantial authority to his generals, and entropy is going to be the name of the game on, under the Mongols, but, it, but it's a sort of entropy that Genghis himself probably foresaw to some degree. Timur brooks no rivals in his operation. He keeps everybody, including his children, under his thumb quite carefully. And whereas you see a fair bit of strategy in the maneuvering of the Mongols in the first iteration, right, in the 13th century, under Chinggis and his successors, moving in multiple different directions, but you can, you can see the plans years in advance, right? They've thought through what they're doing and why they're going to do it. If you look at Timur's campaigns over decades, it's really hard to find any logic in where he's going and why. One year it's in this direction, one year it's another completely different direction. He seems to show no interest whatsoever in actually ruling anything he conquers. It's roll into the place, smash everything, kill everybody if they resist, build a pyramid out of skulls, and deport all the artisans back to Samarkand. Which, to be fair, the Mongols, you know, under Chinggis had destroyed, so, I mean, there was work to do. But it's a very different attitude towards war and governance, which is, again, has some parallels, both with the Mongols and with the Arabs before them, of peace at home, destruction abroad. The way in which to ensure your power at home is to keep all the people of of fighting age far away from your center of power, except Timur himself is out there leading the struggle. Which is why, when it's all said and done, of the things he conquered, how many of them remain for Shah Rukh, his son, to actually rule? The answer is not very much. Not a whole lot remains under the Timurids' control after Timur. Not, not to belittle Shah Rukh's you know, domains, which are not insignificant, mind you, but for a guy who is you know, sacking North India, shredding Ottoman domains in Anatolia sacking cities across Syria didn't leave a whole lot for poor Shah Rukh, did he? If Tamerlan saw himself as a world conqueror, his successors, the Timurids, were more firmly based in Khorasan, especially the cities of northern Afghanistan. I chatted with Nilam Koja about the world of the Timurids and their capital of Herat. So this area that we now know as Afghanistan was part of a larger region that the historical sources call Khorasan. Khorasan was, by geographers, was considered to be an incredibly unique place. Um, They have geographers used to break down the world into what is called iklim, which comes from the Greek uh, klima, so what we now know as climate or climb. So they used to break it down into seven different climbs. Khorasan fell into what was the fourth climb. And the fourth climb was known to be the best because it was in the middle. So it had the best seasons. It had the best topography. Um, It didn't have extreme weather. So you didn't have extreme heat and you didn't have extreme cold. So what that meant was that it allowed for agriculture. It allowed for pasture um, and what it really did was it allowed for proper irrigation so you had great uh, irrigation systems and it allowed for trade. Khorasan is comprised 
at least in the period that we're speaking of, in the 13th, 14th century, of four main um, major cities. So you have Herat, Balkh, Nishapur, and Marv. And Herat and Balkh, as we know, are in present-day Afghanistan today. Herat became the capital for the later Timurids. So Shahrukh, who was um, Timur's successor, used Herat as his capital. And Herat was the capital for people even before the Timurids. You had the Gurs um, who conquered or in an earlier period the Gurid Empire, and their their empire was vast. It went from all of Khorasan and Iran all the way to across the subcontinent. So North India was also part of the Gurid Empire. And Timur, of course, emulates this, right? He also conquers Herat, he conquers Kandahar, he conquers Delhi, and so therefore has a very expansive network too. His successors, on the other hand, don't have as much space, right? They, the territoriality is a little bit smaller. But when it comes to Herat, it was considered to be the place where everything was good and everything would flourish. And so you often have poets characterizing it as if you were to think of the world as the sea, then Khorasan is the shell and Herat is the pearl in its midst. And later you have other um, images that people would employ, which would liken the world as the body and Khorasan was the breast and Herat was the heart. So in terms of when it came to privileging places, you know, in today's context, we like to say things are like the Paris of the world, like X is the Paris of blah. Khorasan was an incredibly um, well-known place and Herat specifically was known to be the premier location of where you would want to reside. If you look at Timurid sources, um, there were important geographers, travel accounts, um, histories that were written, local histories of Herat, that show that um, trade was big. There were five gates to the city. It was a walled city. The first was called the Malik Gate, which was in the northwest. The second was the Iraq Gate in the west. The third was Firozabad Gate in the south. The Kush Gate, which is the fourth, is in the east, and then the Kipchak Gate, which is in the northeast. So the names basically give you an idea of where it would go to, where the road would lead to. And these roads were considered high roads. So there was a place where there was a lot of traffic, and it would you would take these routes out for trade, but also for pilgrims and migrate, just general migration and pastoral migration, all of this. The, the roads themselves were uh, served as connections to these other major cities, right? So Khorasan was really well connected in this sense. Each gate had its own market and there was a central market as well. So it was quite an important trade site. You also see a lot of um, built environment. So not only in terms of the forts, fortified forts, but there were mosques and there were madrasas, so places of learning. It was known not just as a place of, um, of trade, it was also known to be the most important religious site. So you had a lot of scholars who would gravitate towards Herat as well during this period. Um, and the, the rulers actually built, they like to stay in these beautiful garden areas. So they wouldn't necessarily stay in the, um, where the darbars were, 
but they would generally build near uh, this, this, the center of the city. And so you also saw a lot of gardening and built environment that beautified the city even further. The sources are, are ripe in their descriptions about the scents, the water, the water was purifying in terms of medicinal use, but it was also purifying you know, to the soul. You also saw a lot of examples of melons and fruit that were produced there. Um, so there's quite a lot of evidence that Herat was a really important city during these periods. And as you move forward in time, you know, it continues to hold, it still continues to be the center of gravity for trade, for religious movement and religious institutions across the centuries. It's not until really about the 1920th century where it starts to lose its, its importance in world history. The Timurid state was a major center on the overland trade routes that linked China and South Asia to the markets of the Islamic world and beyond. During the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, Kandahar was the most important entrepot that allowed trade between Iran and down to South Asia. And in terms of trade, I think we should also talk about the materials that were traded, the goods that were traded. So the subcontinent was probably one of the biggest exporters of goods. It exported from uh, things like bodies, slaves was an important export to um, spices, sugar, textiles, cotton, linens, all of this, dye. I think historians have generally talked about the silk roads or the spice roads and stuff like this. And so there are multiple routes, multiple roads that you could take. And certainly if you were to just look at the kinds of materials or goods that were traded, it's clear that the goods were coming from as far east as China and goods were going as far west as Europe. So there was trade, like long distance overland trade was quite a big deal. And a lot of the trade was conducted on camels, especially in these mountainous passes. So um, animals were usually what was used to, pack animals were used to, to conduct the trade. Now, in terms of the actual ins and outs, you might not have had someone who moved from China all the way to Europe, but in between you used to have these trade centers, so it would move from group to group. Um, and they knew the land quite well, so this was something that was part of the family occupation almost. So you knew the passes, you knew the routes, you knew seasonally which routes you should take, what you should avoid. You know, they had this intimate knowledge of how to conduct trade. And I think that's really important. Another thing that allowed for it was a, like a banking system that was incredibly helpful for trade. So you didn't have to have people carrying all of their money on them. There were these things called hundis, which were banknotes. And, base, and that was another whole industry, and it allowed for accumulation of wealth for people who weren't even emperors or kings, right? This was another source of income and accumulation of wealth that people had. If you had a hundi, you would basically go to from one trade center to another trade center to have it cashed out. And they would have like branches or banks, you know, like their own. Think of it as like a Bank of America that was in a lot of these different cities. And so if you got a you know, certificate of deposit, then you were able to then cash it out somewhere else. And all you had to carry was this encrypted hundi, and it was encrypted in their own system. So this made trade much easier. 
when we do talk about money and um, accumulation of wealth, one thing to note, again, for the subcontinent, and which is why it was so lucrative to a lot of invaders, is that because they were exporting goods more than they were importing. So think about the amount of things they're exporting. They're exporting sugar. They're exporting linens. They're exporting slaves. They're exporting spices and golden threads and dyes, indigo, jute, all of this are the exports. The only thing they have to import are luxurious goods. And that, so not the average, the average person didn't need to buy this. It was the people in power that bought. So horses for uh, for trade and for war and things like nuts and melons that were luxurious items, items of luxury that, you know, emperors like to indulge in, right? So what that meant was that they were collecting a lot more silver and gold, you know, extracting that. That's what they wanted the most of. They didn't need in-kind trade. They wanted money and they were exporting everything that they could grow. Um, so when it came to wealth, the subcontinent was incredibly rich, which made it very alluring to people like Babur. Babur was the founder of the Mughal dynasty, who ruled South Asia for much of the early modern period. We'll learn more about them in a later episode. They were known as the Mughals because they were seen as a continuation of Mongol rule. And indeed, the Mughal Empire was simply an offshoot of the Timurids. In fact, Babur claimed descent from both Timur and Genghis Khan. This is the third major Islamic empire of the early modern period that we've mentioned in this podcast. The Mughals, much like the Safavids of Iran and the Ottomans in Anatolia, had their roots in the aftermath of the Mongol invasions. We'll say a little bit more about the Mongol legacy in just a bit, but first, I want to talk about Tamerlan and his posthumous celebrity in early modern Europe. So here's a little bit of context. Timur invaded Anatolia during the early 15th century, where the Ottoman dynasty was emerging as a major power among a group of Turkic principalities. But Ottoman history was almost cut short by Timur's armies, who not only defeated the Ottomans, but also took the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid captive. Though the Timurids would not remain in Anatolia, the Ottoman dynasty descended into roughly a decade of civil war following their defeat. The Ottomans would eventually emerge as the most powerful empire of their time over the course of the century that followed, and remain in place until the 20th century. But throughout that time, the encounter between Tamerlan and Bayezid was immortalized through plays and operas produced in Europe. Timur is the subject of a play by Christopher Marlowe uh, in the late 16th century. It's interminable. Basically, in, in each act, Timur and his men ride into some new, faintly mythical domain, having defeated its armies and laid low its ruler, and then they gloat for a while, and then they ride off and do it again, and that goes on for about three hours. And yet this play was tremendously influential. Shakespeare and all his other contemporaries were certainly taking notes. It inspires, though, later plays in France and, and England inspired not just by Timur, but in particular by Timur's encounter with the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid I, whom he defeated at the Battle of Ankara in 1402, took captive along with many of his sons, and in whose captivity Bayezid died. So there's a mid-17th century French play called Tamerlane or The Death of Bayezid, which ultimately informs the Italian libretto 
uh, behind an opera of similar title, Tom Orlano, by Francesco Gasparini in, I think, 1711, as well as an opera by Handel, based off the same libretto from just a decade later, which premiered in London, an opera in which the role of Tamerlano, Tamerlane, Timur, is sung by a castrato, that is to say, a man who was castrated in his youth and who therefore sings in a soprano range. And in fact, this was quite common for, for operas across the period. What was unique is that the role of Bayezid was sung by a tenor. We often think of the heroic roles in, in, in operas as being sung by tenors. This was actually when that first started. And what's interesting here is that Timur is this exotic figure but the fact that the Ottomans were the ones who actively scared and had recently defeated and were at this time still defeating or just beginning to stop defeating um, once we get to the early 18th century, the Europeans. And so the, the story of Bayezid's defeat and captivity by Timur could either be, depending on the situation, a moment for gloating Look, at the Ottomans laid low by somebody even more exotic and Eastern than they. Or a moment for sympathy. Because after Handel's opera, then we get a, a pasticcio, right? a pastiche opera by Vivaldi. What is pasticcio? It means that, you know, since people didn't have recording technology, if they wanted to listen to their favorite tunes, the best way was for a composer to rip off stuff by their contemporaries and then just let people hear it again with new words. And what Vivaldi did in that opera is all the bad guys, and in his telling, the bad guys are Timor and his supporters, sing arias written by his Neapolitan contemporaries, who, for Vivaldi, as a Venetian, were his kind of operatic enemies. And the Ottomans and their allies are all singing Vivaldi's music. And in this case, Baez, it is sung by a nice manly baritone. What are we to take from this? At this moment, in the mid-18th century, when the Ottomans and the Venetians are done fighting their wars against one another, at this moment in which the Ottomans are no longer seen as such a great threat to the territorial integrity of Central or Western Europe, is the Ottomans can now be a sympathetic figure set against an evil, complex, exotic figure from the East who threatens civilization. That we can see in the story of Timur, the strange arc of European and Ottoman history play out. The works Josh White just discussed are still alive today. If you search the internet, you'll find tons of recordings of the most memorable songs from those operas. Here's a little clip of a live performance of an aria from the Vivaldi pasticcio Bayezit. The singer is the Italian mezzo-soprano Cecilia Bartoli.
you know, there was a kind of Mongol way of state building. For the rule, the, the, the kind of will of the chief to be law in the way that it is in successive Turco-Mongol states isn't quite the same as kind of the absolutist authority in, say, 18th century Europe. One of the tasks, though, that faces um, jurists within kind of the Islamic world is how to legitimize and to incorporate this new alien tradition and to make it Islamic. And then we need to consider the fact that kind of within Islamic jurisprudence, there is already a very large space carved out for the ruler to exercise their authority in certain matters. There is already the idea that much of the stuff that we would think of as being criminal law is just not kind of the space that the jurists and the qadis operate within. And that a lot of that is already delegated. Punishment is delegated to the ruler. And so this creates a space then that this kind of new idea of of the will of the chief as law, yasa, or later on we'll talk about it as being qanun, that can begin to fill that vacuum. And the jurists simply need to say, well, that's a matter of qanun, or it is in fact appropriate under Islamic law to follow the ruler, and this is their stuff. But there will be tension there. There's plenty of tension there. There was this system that was established by Chinggis Khan called the Yasa. There was supposed to be, in Chinggis Khan's kind of um, conceptualization, a rule for every occasion and a regulation for every circumstance. And each crime was supposed to have a specific penalty that went along with it. I think that was not, by the time of the Ilkhanate, you know, the Yasa was not um, implemented in a regular fashion, and we don't have a surviving copy of it, so we don't know exactly what these regulations were. But kind of more significantly, there was a kind of Mongol uh, system of military hierarchy. It was based on a very uh, clear decimal system. So within the army, all soldiers were divided into companies of 10. One of those 10 was the commander, a commander of 10,000 was kind of, I mean, these are like ranks within the army. The commander of 10,000 was called the commander of the two men. One of each of these commanders became a commander of 100 of those. And these were, you know, sort of irregardless of the original status or ethnicity of the soldiers. This was a kind of a way of recognizing merit, um, which was which was a very powerful aspect of like of how the Mongol Empire for the short time that it flourished managed to stay so powerful was that they unlike uh, states in Europe did not they didn't adhere to a primogeniture system or there was no expectation that the eldest son of the ruler would uh, take over from his father it was really based on a system in which all of the brothers and sons of the most recent Khan would vie and sometimes fight and sometimes negotiate amongst themselves to decide who was going to be the most viable and powerful and kind of diplomatically savvy successor. I think that is a practice that we can also see implemented in the early 
centuries of uh, Ottoman rule, for instance, a sort of a real kind of recognition of merit as a key facet of maintaining a strong and flexible state. And so when we think about what do the Mongols change, why do the Mongols matter? The very short answer is everything. Nothing is the same after the Mongols. Yeah, a lot of the people in these regions might have been Muslim or Christian, just as they had been before. But no dynasty will approach rule in quite the same way ever again. The demographics are going to be different. The ideas of what legitimacy is, it will come, sure, from military success as it had before, but now descent from Chinggis is going to be really important for some amount of time. And the idea, too, that the will of the chief is law, this idea of yasa, is going to be fundamentally a part of rulership in every successive Turco-Mongol dynasty to follow. There's this tendency always to talk with good reason about the Columbian exchange. Columbus's voyages lead to a transformation what people in Europe and in the Americas eat, the diseases that they die from, how they view the world, how they pray. The Mongolian exchange is just as real, just as world-changing. We, again, rightfully focus on the demographic changes wrought by the Mongols. We rightly focus, too, on the environmental changes wrought by the Mongols, which are connected to those demographic ones, that by killing tremendous numbers of people, which the Mongols do, they change the physical landscape in some ways irreparably. We know now that the desertification in places like Iran can't be attributed wholly to Mongol destruction, but they certainly helped. But as a result of all those connections that we've been talking about, as a result of linking rulership in Iran with rulership in China, we see too, again, the exchange of crops that change the diets in both places forever and perhaps for the good. The, the quantity of rice, of beans, all these things are new. All these things are different. Technologies, artistic practices, all change irrevocably. So if you think about the kind of classic Persian miniature painting, that's what we often go up, right? Persian miniature painting is a direct product of Mongol and then later Timurid influence of the exchange and the mixing of practices of Chinese painting meeting Islamic book arts. The combination of those two things comes to its real form under the Timurids and then expands from there, but the Mongols make that possible. Much of what we associate with the art and architecture of Islamic Central Asia and of the later major dynasties, the Mughals, the Safavids, the Ottomans, with which we'll end this whole discussion, all of that grows out of the Mongol experience, the Mongol exchange, both through the ways in which they destroyed things, but also through the connections that they forged, which really were world-changing in, in ways that are really kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around in some ways. But the world was never the same. That's, that's clear. My first in, uh, introductions to the Mongols uh, was in the days of, like, mountains of skulls or something. But now it seems like, you know, the Mongols as state builders, the Mongols as uh, institution builders, the Mongols as kind of tolerant pragmatists is, 
is more in line with how we understand Mongols today. Like both are true at once, I guess. I don't know. I mean, they were mountains of skulls guys, but also <laughs> institution builders. Whatever value you ascribe to them, it's hard to argue against the significance of the Mongol conquests. Yet you'll notice that in this podcast we never really discussed what prevented the Mongols from continuing westward into Egypt and North Africa after dismantling the Abbasid Caliphate. For that story, you'll have to tune into our next episode of this series, in which we look at the Mamluk Sultanate. As we'll learn, until the Ottoman conquest of the 16th century, the Mamluk Sultanate was arguably the most sophisticated Islamic empire the world had ever seen. So that concludes our discussion of the Mongols and their significance for the history of the Islamic world. And if you want more information, we've got plenty of supplementary materials on the Ottoman History Podcast website. That's where you'll also find the other episodes in this series. I'm Chris Grayton. Thanks so much for joining me in this episode, and we hope to have you back as we continue in our exploration of the making of the Islamic world. Stay tuned. <laughs>